Welcome to the Church Collective Podcast. My name is Ryan, and in this episode, myself and Chris Bellamy had the opportunity to talk to Matt Marr, and we were both blown away. Like, everybody knows he's kind of like one of the best worship leaders, pastors you could know, but man, he just unpacks so much wisdom for us, just his uh, experience in music and just his pastoral heart and just the way he leads worship was just absolutely fantastic. So I enjoyed this chat. I hope you enjoy listening to it or watching it if you're on YouTube. You can find us on YouTube or anywhere you podcast or Facebook or we're trying to be everywhere we can be. But let's jump right in with the Church Collective Podcast. Really quick, a little bit about myself. I I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada. 25 years ago this year, I moved to Arizona, Phoenix, uh, on the 3rd of July. I remember that because I woke up the next day. It was a Sunday, and it was the 4th of July. So I figured we were going to blow things up um, because I was like, that's what you do in America on the 4th of July. And my cousin invited me to church. So I went to church with her, and and then we went and blew things up. Um, But we... Uh, I started going back to church and kind of got involved in, in ministry then. I ended up finishing my music degree as Arizona State University and then worked at a church for 13 years full time as a worship okay. pastor. Um, that whole time, my life, ha- for whatever reason, has moved in like seven year increments. So the day that I started working full time in full time ministry, I was graduated from college. It was 1999. And uh, I remember the first day of work, I went in and there was this like side chapel and I was in praying and I had um, my Bible. And um, I read this scripture passage that uh, was actually open. There was another Bible in the chapel that was open to this scripture passage and I read it and I felt like God was saying, this is uh, like a, it's like a life verse, you know, that kind of thing. But then um, anyways, I worked there. The other thing was I felt like I, like I heard the phrase seven years and like kind of not audibly, um, but like in my heart, I, and it was, I worked there full time, seven years to the day. And so since then it's kind of like my life has sort of moved in like seven year chapters. So, that's a real long preamble to say that um, when I made all the people said amen in 2013, uh, that was sort of the culmination of a, of like the end of a seven year period where I signed a record deal and uh, was uh, transitioning out of like full-time local church ministry from a, I guess from a worship leading standpoint, you know, you never really, you're never really out of local church ministry because that that really is the only ministry there is, um, is everything is just an extension of the local church. That album was like a culmination of seven years of writing songs and building relationships and just different things that God was doing. So a lot in breathing, which came out in March, uh, it's kind of the same thing. I kind of looked back on the past seven years, uh, of, uh, living in Nashville, um, getting plugged into two local churches, uh, leading, writing songs with lots of different people, traveling. And so um, I was trying to figure out what this album was. And I, I wanted to model it after all the people sent in, man, where it was like a hybrid of songs that we recorded live and 
new studio stuff. And um, so for me, it was, it, it kind of came out as that. It's almost like a, like kind of a retrospective of the past seven years. Yeah. And then kind of moving forward. That's really cool. Um, so Alive and Breathing seems to be doing, doing really well. Could you speak to maybe you know, just what is, did you know that one was going to be kind of like the, the one that might take off? Like to tell me a little bit about like the process for that song and just, yeah. I mean, you've seen a number of songs pop that, that you've written. So what, what does it feel like? How do you know when you're like, Oh, this one's special or is it kind of always, Oh, there you go. Like they like it. No, I don't think so at all. And, and, um, it what's interesting about that song was that, um, a lot of other songs that I've written, particularly in, in writing worship music, like I've always come in with a strong sense of like, like I always say that the, when you're writing songs for the church, um, you're the, the storehouse of ideas is your personal prayer life and your personal devotional life. Yeah. And so it's in those kind of interior quiet moments where it's just you and God or, or you're in the midst of serving in some local context uh, where um, there, is a, there is a great opportunity for your ego to die. Mm. And, um, you know, in some ways it's like you're in a place where you're kind of taken for granted. And I don't mean in a, in a toxic sense or an unhealthy sense, but in as much of a sense of like people just see you as for you and not as like, like a, there's no celebrity attached to who you are. Yeah. And even in the midst of leading in those situations, even in the midst of like, you know, like I said, your personal prayer time, song ideas pop. And for me, they've always been like, it isn't always a melodic idea or, a, or, or like a musical chord change idea. That happens sometimes, but a lot of times it's a, it's a sense of revelation of, I need to write a song about this, mm. whatever it is. That's what Lord, I need you was. Yeah. Um, and now the answer to the question, like, is the song going to take off or is it not going to take off? There, there's a certain point of it that it's like um, a lot of it can come down to the right performance at the right time. Um, you know, computers can hide a multitude of mistakes, but they can't, um, they don't hide the truth. Uh, and so you could tune someone's vocal so it sounds perfect, but if it, but it's, that's only like, 40, 30% of the information, the rest of it is like all it's feeling and it's emotion and it's the spirit, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so some of that is just in the power of like a performance, however frail and, and broken it is. So with Alive and Breathing, Ellie and I wrote the song and we didn't really have an idea what we were gonna write about. We just kind of got together. We had written once before and we had a good idea started, but we never finished it. So the only thing I had in my mind was, man, I just want to finish the song today. That's all. I, like, I want to make sure that we've got a song uh, over a certain level of completion that like, even if we have to text back and forth, because she lives in England, we're going to finish this thing. Yeah. And I was dealing with a lot of anxiety in my life at the time. I was, um, uh, yeah, just, I've, I've got three young kids and, so the, the things that I'm anxious about are maybe different than someone in their twenties, but, uh, you know, but, but fear is fear and, you know, uh, uh, the very real sense of panic that can come from it. So 
we started writing a song. Ellie was talking about, you know, people who abandon their sense of, um, abandon that inner, that inner sense of like childlike wonder, people who abandon dreams, mm -hmm. um, you know, out of a sense of like, um, wounded pragmatism. And, uh, so we just started writing this song. We didn't really have a goal in mind, which is, which I was like, I was kind of a bit scared at that point. Cause then I was like, Oh no, we're just going to meander around. We're not going to get a song. Yeah. And then, and then the chorus started to emerge and then halfway through the writing process while like scarfing down lunch, eating lunch and talking about the song, uh, the, the phrase, uh, sort of emerged of if you're still alive and breathing, praise the Lord. And, and the night before I'd gone for a walk with my daughter and she said, she's four or she was, she was five at the time. Yeah. And, she, and I said, daddy's going to write a song tomorrow. And she said, write a song about everything. And I thought Psalm 150. Yeah. So we wrote the song and, but you know, I, neither one of us knew, you know, what would transpire a year later. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then that was even its own, there was a sense of like, of me of like, either I was thinking to myself, I'm like, well, this is either the Lord's timing or the worst possible timing ever. <laughs> and I was, but maybe that's, maybe God's timing sometimes feels like the worst possible time ever for us. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so I got to lead the song a handful of times on the road, uh, on this tour that I was on called the road show. Mm -hmm. And um, man, I just can't wait to get out and to get to sing to play this and sing the song again, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, so it from it became this anthem throughout the course of the year last year. Um, as I was working on it, we recorded the crowd, like the crowd, um, the gang vocals. Half of the gang vocals are actually um, uh, an audience. Or uh, yeah, we were on a tour called the Roadshow, and one night it was actually the night in Phoenix. We had everyone um, in Ontario, California. I taught everyone that the tagline and the chorus, "Praise the Lord," and I, we recorded them singing it. Nice. Um, so it kind of the song followed me around the whole year. I think in mm -hmm. a way. Um, yeah. So. That's awesome. You mentioned your daughter kind of inspired a little. Is that that's Rowan, right? Yeah. So, it, so, so looking at your Instagram a couple of days ago, she's like, you're, you're doing songs from Rowan. Like, to talk a little bit. Like, is she, she she's making those up as you're doing it. Like, yeah, she's oh, just fantastic. she's like a freestyling queen. Um, <laughs> and we're just trying to. I think like any parent, you just try to. I, I you know, I, I'm I grew up in an age where you did things that you were good at. And the things that you weren't good at, you just sort of stopped doing. You know what I mean? So like yeah. I wasn't I wasn't good. I wanted to be a ninja, but I have a mild bleeding <laughs> disorder. So that's not a good idea. Right. Um Rowan is just she just started gravitating towards writing songs. And yeah. you know, I'd sit down and play at the piano and she'll just kind of spontaneously sing stuff, which is fine. So now she hears a lot of breathing and she's like, That's my song. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh man, here we go. Right. You know, yeah, it, it's, and it, even in that, I think what I would say just to kind of 
further answer the question you asked of like, how do you know when a song is special or when a song isn't? Yeah. I think there's a degree of scale. You, I know when something is commercially good. Sure. It's catchy. It's hooky. But they're also, you know, like it, it makes you feel a certain way. But I've, you know, I've gone back to like square one with music, which is kind of like with having a six-year-old, you kind of do, which is like asking her, why do you like this song? Yeah. If she likes something. And it's usually because it moves her. And so I think as a, as a believer, as a Christian who's trying to write congregational music, it's sort of like the first question is like, does this move me? Um, you know, some people would say, well, the first question you need to ask is, is it true what you're saying? Is it true? And I would say, well, that, I think that goes without saying. It should go without saying. Yeah, sure. Um, that, that is the lyric um is the lyric does does the lyric uh maintain fidelity to the scriptures like that to me it's like that's yeah that's that's like really really important and then but yeah this then ask the question like does this does this genuinely move you you know i think um right now we're in a time where like so much worship music is being made yeah and the temptation is that we just sort of like, we look at what someone else is doing and we just go, I want to, oh man, I want to write a song that feels like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually the beginning of any, any developing any voice is plagiarism. Sure. It's the highest form of flattery. Right. Um, but then I think the next question is at some point you have to venture out and say, okay, these songs come from this church or this community or this writer and their unique relationship with God. And, but then have the audacity uh, and the self-assuredness to look and go, well, wait a second, I'm a child of God. I'm, I'm unique. I'm a unique individual. There's no one like me in the world. My struggles are, I've shared struggles and shared ideals and shared dreams, but the way that I see them, uh, is can be unique so how do i how do i develop that how do i how do i start figuring out you know and i think that comes primarily from listening to god yeah that's great so you said you wrote um alive and breathing uh remotely like what was it over skype or well it started in person it started in oh, person okay. and then and then we texted back and forth and then we got in person um, so it's like a, com it was a combination of, of, I think, different mediums. And I think we hopped on FaceTime at one point, um, oh. which wasn't, FaceTime's not good. Like Zoom, Zoom, I've done a lot of Zoom writes in this quarantine, actually. Hmm. Um, that, and that's I, what I was going to ask you. Like, have, yeah. you, have you been doing more and more of that now with the quarantine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, and, uh, I mean, primarily that, that's been it. I think since restrictions eased up in Nashville, I've had two rights in person, um, but primarily it's still over Zoom. And it's it's really good in the sense that like, you know, I, I don't I don't know if this is true, but it, it feels like the internet was built to be like one giant two-way radio. Um, like it's not designed for people to have simultaneous communication. 
Um, and, and the only reason that's a drag when you're writing a song, I think particularly a worship song is, there's something about the first time you get to sing a song as a group of people or as like, as, uh, as two people that when you're singing a song together after you've written it, um, there is this sense of agreement and, uh, and what's a drag right now is it's hard. It's really important. You can't do it on FaceTime and Zoom's a little bit better, but there's still lag. And yeah. so whenever you try to sing a song together at the same time, somebody starts falling behind. <laughs> so the guy who figures that out, they're gonna, they got it. Yeah. He's good. Yeah. He's going to own an Island. <laughs> yeah. Ryan and I were watching the uh, jars of clay like a live thing and it seemed like they were actually doing it playing live but from different locations but we were like trying to figure is it this out possible or is this a really good like pre-recorded thing you know it could be a couple of options you know they um uh yeah they're dear friends and they actually have this great rehearsal space that's big enough that they probably i don't know i'm, I'm gonna text them and find out <laughs> probably all in the I, same building <laughs> yeah, well yeah just just like literally socially distanced because yeah. that's one of the things that as soon as this happened i just started researching i was like okay someone has to have built uh some sort of application that allows people to play music simultaneously yeah, yeah. and um and no one has yet man so somebody needs to jump in like you said on an island <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely who else did you uh, co-write with on the album? Um, this album, I think, so there are, like, you know, I re-recorded White Flag. That song was written with Jason Ingram and Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman. And uh, Come As You Are, which was co-written with David Crowder um, and Ben Glover. Uh, let me look here. Um, here For You, which is another song that I wrote with, um, with Matt Redman. Um, and uh, Jesse Reeves and uh, Tim Wanstall, who's actually a guy from a, um, a band called Athlete in, in, in the UK. Um, Soul on Fire, which was with the guys from Third Day. Um, Run to the Fathers, a newer song uh, that I co-wrote with Cody Kearns and uh, Rand Jackson. I actually wrote it the week, I think the week after I wrote Alive and Breathing. Um, and then uh, a song called Light the Way, which is a new song, which was um, co-written with Sean Curran and another writer named, um, oh, why am I blanking on his name? Um, Jess Cates. Mm. Um, and then Come Holy Spirit, uh, which is a song uh, that Martin Smith uh, had recorded that uh, I sort of jumped in. Uh, on the tail end of he'd he'd written it with a bunch of folks from his church community St. Peter's in Brighton and um yeah so it really is you know and then obviously Lord I Need You Lord of My Life's another new one I wrote with Jonathan Smith and and Rand Jackson um and then there's a song on there called Joyful Noise which was like an 11th hour song that I co-wrote with uh Bernie Herms who's the producer uh, on that song and uh a guy named Simon Dumas and Simon is uh, from Gibraltar and uh, he's in a band called King Calloway, which is like a, a, a it's like a, it's, it's a sort of like a pop country band. Um, 
Yeah, so it's like a pretty pretty big smorgasbord of people. Do you like doing like two people co-writes or do you like doing bigger or what do you prefer? I think it, it just depends. Um, I would say to me two, two or three is like the sweet spot. Yeah. I think two is great um, if the two people know each other. If they don't know each other, having a third is is really helpful because especially if it's like uh let's say one one person's the artist and then uh or or one person's like the person who wants to carry the song and then the other two are um you know collaborators it it can help mm -hmm. diversify things you know or if you yeah. say like you get okay well let's get three of us together and one person's like the stronger singer the other person's like really good at kind of you know creating a bed of music and the other person's really good at lyrics and um typically like in national circles that's that's what you would see a lot is there will be a guy there who's like has a real strong editing sense um in the in, in in terms of like the ability of someone says out a phrase and they're like oh what if you switch that word with this word or they sing out a melody and they're like oh what if instead of that note it was this note it's like uh, they it's like they know they know what it shouldn't be hmm. and in the process they they help they help it be what it should be and you know it's interesting when you talk about co-writes like that too because people start to try to quantify what someone's ability or what they bring in terms of their um, the actual words they contribute or the melody they write. And like, I would just offer a word of caution. It's just caution. It's not, I'm, it's, I don't know. I'm no, I'm not an authority. <clears throat> to me, if three people walk into a room and there wasn't a song and then there is, um, I don't, I don't, I think it's really hard to quantify what everyone does. And to somehow attribute to worth of it, of saying, oh, well, you just sat in the corner and just flipped at your Instagram feed the whole time. Therefore, we're not going to give you uh, any share of the song. Also, I think because there, I just think God, I think God rewards the spirit of uh, hospitality and generosity. And so to me, it's like a three creative people. Like I've, I've tried to do this as much as I can of like, I think if, if you bring an idea that's pretty much finished, that's one thing. But I think if like all three of you got together and you're like hanging out and having a cup of coffee and you're chatting and you're talking or you're praying and someone shares a scripture and the next thing you know, boom, a song gets written. Um, I think it's good just to honor everyone and say, man, we all got to watch this thing be created out. Of, we watched something get come out of nothing yeah. and, and we should share in that. Yeah, that's great. Talk, uh, Chris and I both have music degrees too. You said, you said you got your music degree and then went into church work. Could you maybe speak to the value that that's had in just your career? Oh man. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of hard to quantify, I think yeah. in some sense, because I, I did seven years of undergraduate study. I didn't plan on it. It's just, <laughs> I moved after my third year and then basically had to start over. So in Canada, I was at Memorial University School of Music in Newfoundland, where I grew up, and I did three years of 
it was two years of just general music studies, right? I was a piano major and you're just taking, and then the third year, after your third year is when you're supposed to kind of declare, um, well, after your second year, you declare whether or not you're a music educational major. And so I declared theory and composition because sure. I, I, I didn't practice enough at the time to be a performance major. <laughs> yeah. So I was interested more in composition. Everyone kind of knew like, oh, he's creative, he writes. The kind of composition there was more like neo, uh, I wouldn't even know, I wouldn't say neoclassical. I would say 20th century composition. Sure, okay. So um, the guy who's the head of the department there was, it was all like, uh, you know, mixed media, modern composition, you know, John Cage, Philip Glass, yeah. you know, using reel to reel machines and prepared pianos. Mm -hmm. all, all like real kind of, you know, modern stuff, 12 tone row type stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'd studied music theory and then I moved to Arizona and I took a jazz piano class because it was the only credit hour I could afford. It was 350 mm -hmm. bucks a credit hour. And I worked at a coffee shop and practice piano six hours a day in mm. a jazz piano studio. And by the, I had to get residency in Arizona. So I'd live there for a year so I could get in-state tuition. And then I got a tuition scholarship mm. through the jazz department for jazz piano. So then um, I mostly just practiced and I took a couple of uh, upper division music elective classes. Like one was on recording one was 16th century counterpoint, yeah. so like, you know, uh, Palestrina, some Bach. Sure. And then, uh, but then the rest of it was like general studies. I had to retake English and math and sciences. And, nice. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had had so much music school experience in Canada. I played in symph youth symphony and um, sang in chamber choirs and choirs and I, I accompanied musical theater students through three years of college in Newfoundland, played in a rock band, played piano in a hotel bar. I kind of just had a ton of musical like experience and, and I would say all of it is, all of it is a teacher. Mm. Cause uh, you know, I remember there was this guy who was an upright bass player who came to the jazz department at ASU and he gave like a master class. It was so, I, so strong. I can't remember his name, but I found out after he was a Christian, but he was kind of like, he was, you could tell like, I like, it's like, I think this guy was a hippie during the Jesus movement. And eventually he just <laughs> kind of became a Christian because he talked for like 45 minutes about listening. Hmm. And I just remember at the time, you know, 21, 22 year old me just going like, oh, well, this guy just got, I think this guy just likes the sound of his own voice. Um, <laughs> but what I would say is actually I've, I've gone back and retrospecting went, man, he was right. Um, in the sense that like, I think God's always teaching us and speaking to us through circumstance and through uh, different events. And so, you know, the formal classroom training and stuff is really really important yeah but then also the lived experience of like playing a gig and lugging in your own equipment and setting it up and playing and nobody paying any attention to you <laughs> sure um uh 
it all, I think it helped, you know, and then, and then taking all of that and then being in a local church context and so much of it going, well, so much of this doesn't even apply Mm. and going, I have to learn a totally different set of skills now. And these are going to be way more like pastoral in dimension. I have to learn, but, but it's like, I have to learn how to listen to people. And it's like, well, but I, I played in a jazz combo and I learned how to listen to the bass player and I learned how to listen to the drummer. So I just have to learn how to listen to this wonderful uh, retired person who sings alto parts slightly out of tune every week at the five <laughs> o'clock service on Saturdays. And, and, then, and then your faith kicks in, right? Because you're like, somehow the way that I do this actually could glorify God, which... And which to go what you said, where it's like, there's so much emphasis right now in terms of being on a platform. Yeah. Um, and not necessarily a ton of emphasis on like deferring to all the other people that are on the platform with you. Yeah, that's great. So. Hey, Ryan, sorry. let me ask. I get long ask. answers, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's <laughs> yes, fantastic. Man. As soon as you said, yeah, you're talking about jazz, I, I'm super curious who your favorite jazz pianists are. <laughs> uh, I was really, really into Bill Evans, McCoy Tyner, Thelonious Monk, um, Keith Jarrett, obviously, is, was, is just amazing. His solo record stuff is incredible. Um, uh oscar peterson obviously because i'm a canadian and just his story I, to me is like so i mean that guy just literally just played hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a day as a, as, as a kid young man and just his playing is so virtuosic um but i would say um pound for pound Oh, yeah, um, I think it's, uh, hold on. Uh, yeah, it's not this, uh, yeah, John Medeski, who's not, he's not really a piano player, but he's in a band called Medeski, Martin, and Wood. Mm-hmm. Um, and he plays, he's a keyboard player. So he plays B3, he plays, you know, Whirly or Rhodes, he plays a bunch of different stuff, but, um, yeah, his playing is just unreal. So, yeah, it's kind of—I would say it's all those. Honestly, too, like my my um, my piano teacher in college, uh, a guy by the name of Chuck Moronic, uh, was just—he he he was taught by Vince Maggio, who is a—it's um, the guy at University of Miami who taught Bruce Hornsby, and uh, but Chuck was a fierce fierce solo jazz piano player um i mean still i'm sure still is you know he's retired and um really uh i learned a lot and and it was also severely intimidated every day for four years it's a good way to go about it (laughs) do you ever get to like a five chord in worship and you're just like man i want to throw an altered scale or tritone sub in here real bad (laughs) you know (laughs) 
uh, it's funny when I, uh, I did a weekend, a couple of weekends, uh, of, uh, events with Corey Asbury. And it's funny, like, I would say like a huge props to him. Uh, that guy is just pure talent. And, um, we would, we would stay up late on the bus, listening to music at night and his ear is freakish. So there were times when we'd be, it'd be him and I were on stage together and he'd be playing a song and I'd start throwing in chord substitutions occasionally. He, he wouldn't miss a beat though. Like, and it's like, wow. here's a guy who's like, he has no, no formal jazz ear training, but can totally hang. Um, Israel Houghton, actually the first co-write I ever did was with Israel Houghton and one of my mentors. Oh, man. And um, that guy, <laughs> just <laughs> like they, uh, yeah. I mean, you could, you, could, uh, you could put on his headstone, uh, try to keep up. Uh, <laughs> because uh, his, his, his ear was insane. So there was a period of time I would say in the late nineties, early two thousands, where I felt like in worship, you could get, you could get away a lot more with that stuff. Uh, we are probably in the most diatonic era of music in music history. As a Gosh. We're almost at a point where basically everything is just a plagal cadence. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Could you, uh, I'd love to hear like maybe I'm just lo looking at your like Lord I need you is one that like I think a lot of people just always do like could you speak a little bit towards I mean I don't know how many thousands of times you've probably led that song how do you how do you keep that fresh and I'm kind of thinking of the worship leader that's like you know coming week in week out leading worship like what are you doing spiritually to just get to make sure you're in a place to lead the room well uh, when you're doing something that's so routine at this point for you I mean I guess I'd say I mean, that's just, <laughs> I mean, I think that's just at this point, that's just the Christian life. Hmm. You know, how do you wake up every day? You know, it says God's mercies are new every morning. Yeah. So how does mercy stay new? Well, the only way mercy stays new, I guess, in the human context is if uh, my, <laughs> my sinfulness stays new. And I, it's, yeah. that doesn't give me license to just go sin as much as I want. As much as it is uh, as an infinite, it's an infinite journey into um, uh, the Paschal mystery. A friend of mine is a theologian said, if you're ever stuck with a question in Christianity, the answer is always Paschal mystery, which is, fancy way of saying the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm. The problem is, is that we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus as an event mm. and not as a way of living that, right. we have been, that we've been baptized into, we've been sort of called into, right? So, um, you know, and Paul says, it is no longer I, but it is Christ, you know, who lives in me. So every day I'm called into death of self and preeminence of Christ and his resurrection power alive in me. 
And so what I would say is first and foremost, if you're sick of singing songs, don't look at the song. <laughs> yeah. Look at you. <laughs> Cause all these songs are, they're just mirrors. Like that's what they're supposed to be. Right. So why would I ever get, the only reason I'd get sick of holding up a mirror is if I got sick of, of what I was seeing huh. and I was afraid to admit it to myself. That's great. So, uh, Lord, I need you. The trick with worship songwriting is that you write stuff that you have to sing every day of your life. Mm. So don't, don't pursue something that's cool for the sake of being cool. Um, I love innovation and lyrics. Um, I'm, I, I'm all about like expanding the frontiers of our grammar um, so that we, but there's, there's gotta be a point like that. That's not an end even of, it, of itself. And the problem is, is that when we make it an end, given of itself, it can't sustain us. So yeah. then that's how we end up, I think, drifting away from the call um, uh, to uh, journey with Christ. And uh, so what I, I, yeah, I think like for me, I, I, when I sing Lord, I need you, you know, when I sing those lines, um, I, even if I don't feel it, I can still agree with it. And there's, there's power in agreeing. There's power in agreement. So, Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. I'm pretty anxious right now, but I know that's true. So I agree with it. I agree with it. It's true. I acknowledge it's true. And in, in, that, in that interior acknowledgement, there's a little death of self that's happening, right? There's yeah. a little bit of like, you know, um, without you, I fall apart. Well, that's true. I've experienced that in my life. Maybe not now, like, but I've definitely experienced without Christ, things start to come apart. Yeah. You know, uh, you're the one that guides my heart. Once again, it's like, that's a true statement, yeah. you know, and then comes this, and then comes the confession. And, and I think the thing is, is that we equate the power sometimes, we equate the power of God with the power of our confession that's real dangerous man yeah because um emotions are fickle sure so they change and a lot of times uh anyways our emotional response to god is usually our emotions are a response to something so if if it's sort of like saying like god if i'm moved in worship let me be moved by something true. So if I'm moved by my own grief or sorrow, that's great, but let it move me to you. Mm. And if I'm convicted, let it be that I was moved by your spirit and by the truth. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, you know, um, it's 2020. So it's 18 years since I wrote Your Grace is Enough. And I've pretty much sung that song every time <laughs> I've led worship. And the other thing I'll say this is that so much about leading worship, I think in the Psalms, David, there's a lot of focus on memory in the sense of like, and um, a lot of times we, we can make declarative statements about who God is because of who he says he is in the scriptures, but also because of the evidence of who he's been in our life. And if he's the same yesterday and today and forever, we can declare that over our future, right? right? 
So your grace is enough for me now is like a spiritual Rolodex. When I'm singing that song, I'm thinking about all the times in my life where I've led that song from a real, from a real authentic place. And even though I don't feel the same feelings as I did then, I can still acknowledge that that was real and that happened. Yeah. And, and I can say, um, thanks for that memory. And so I'm singing in agreement with it once again. And, uh, you know, I think, I mean, I would say, I think humility is so, you know, there's a reason why they say that pride is the root of all sin. And, uh, you know, I think you, it's always good to check your pride level as you're leading a song. Sure. And it doesn't, and once again, like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like this big ordeal. Like if you're leading a song and you, and you kind of realize, man, I'm really focused on how I'm singing, how I look, how this sounds. I don't really care about the spiritual implications of what I'm singing or what's happening. It doesn't have to be a big deal, but you can just make an honest, you can have an honest conversation with God in your heart in that moment and be like, oh, all right, Lord, I'm off track. Uh, I, I let it go. And uh, just help me, help me focus on you. Give me grace to, it doesn't have to be this big ordeal, you know what I mean? And um, I think just sort of that kind of, it's like maintenance in a way. Yeah. I think, I think it would help. Before we let you go, I'm dying to know, you, you said not all of that behind you is yours. <laughs> um, is that your space? Yeah, so this is, a, this is the control room uh, of, uh, of my kind of, it's like a writing slash content studio. So um, when we found a house that we bought seven years ago, there was this building behind it that was like a, a, a machine shop. Um, it looked kind of looks like a giant detached garage, but it, it was like all concrete floors and no, no, no working, like barely any working electricity, um, uh, pin boards on the walls, no insulation. And so over the, over the years, I've kind of renovated it, turned it into a writing studio. And then um, just different guys that live around this area of town, um, everyone's kind of pulled their gear together. And so it's kind of like a cooperative and um, uh, everyone kind of gets access to it. Uh, and I've just tried to kind of, you know, kind of keep it that way, but I've made the past three albums here and uh, it's been a huge, huge help. I think especially in this season too, like my heart goes out to anybody who's trying to write songs on zoom with, uh, you know, in a bathroom and their kids yeah. are <laughs> it's like, God bless you. Uh, it's just, you know, the circumstances are crazy as it is, but, um, but yeah, so this has been a, it's been a huge, it's been a huge help for sure. Would you mind sharing your uh, signal chain for your vocals? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> it honestly changes a lot, but <clears throat> usually Back there on a stand is a is a Bach uh, 251, which is David Bach's um, model of a of a Telefunken, and I've had that microphone now for five years, um, 
and usually like I did a bunch of records with a producer named Paul Moak, um, who has yeah. a studio in Nashville. Smoke yeah, and Paul's studio, he's man, he especially during quarantine, like he kind of documented all everything, all of his gear. He did really it's really great stuff. So if you're if you're a gearhead or you're in the studio stuff, go check it out. But <clears throat> we kind of figured out that my voice sounds great. Um kind of on three things. It's either like a, either a 251 or a U47 or, uh, or an SM7. So <clears throat> I pretty much that's those are the, I, I don't have a U47, but I have an SM7. So if I'm <clears throat> here, I'll usually cut a vocal on a 251 and it's running through um, one of Rupert Neve's uh, Shelford series channel strips. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's got the, it's got the preamp, the EQ, the compression, and then it's got a silk button. And so silk is that variable, like 28 K headroom thing that you can either, um, it's, there's three settings. One is off. The other one is modeled after when he worked it for Neve. And then the other one is, uh, like a, and that's blue. And then the red is modeled after the focus, right? Kind of pre's. And so, it just changes the character of the headroom. Mm -hmm. And then I also have in that signal chain, I have an 1176 uh, F revision, um, which was just kind of the revision that I was kind of looking for. Um, it's kind of that kind of late seventies rock, like super aggressive, but, um, but I just love how it sounds. So um, that sometimes is in there. Sometimes it's not. Uh, a lot of just depends on who I'm working with. Some people don't like how it sounds. They feel like it's like, you know, it's not a distressor, you know, uh, that it's totally, totally, it adds a ton of character to a vocal and, and not everyone likes that when they're mixing. Some people want things to be as, you know, discreet or as, um, transparent as possible. So you can color a vocal more in a mix. Um, but that's kind of it. And then, but when I do stuff on the road, I have a road rig that when I was touring that I would travel with and that I would just run through the Apollo. I, there's an eight Apollo eight in there. And then I would just sing into an SM seven mm -hmm. and half my Christmas record is that. And although a couple of the songs, we actually, we brought out the Shelford and just kind of installed it in there. So we were still using the Shelford, but we ran it Well, but I sang through an SM seven and dude, like I would say, if you're gonna buy a microphone for home recording, an SM7 is like the best investment you could make because that thing is so versatile. It's so unidirectional. Um, you could be in a bedroom and be yelling into it, and somebody could be watching TV in the next room, and they and they probably won't. You probably won't hear it. Mm -hmm. um, you can you can record guitar with it if you wanted to if you're in a pinch, and it doesn't. It, I mean, it sounds fine. It's essentially an SM57 um, with a little bit more something. But, you know, that's the microphone that Tom Petty sang into for his whole career. So it worked out, worked out well for him. <laughs> 
Hey, thank you so much for being a part of this episode. Would love to connect with you. Head over to Instagram, shoot us a DM, or shoot us a DM on Facebook, or get in the Facebook, The Church Collective Community Facebook group. We would just love to connect with you in all the ways we can. We're also doing a number of Zoom hangs. If you go to thechurchcollective.com and hit that Zoom hangs button, we have Zoom hangs for basically whatever kind of part of worship ministry you're in. We are trying to make one for you. So get involved, get connected. Cannot wait to see you in there.